You ready to uh, kick this bitch off? Let's do it. All right, here we go. Today is Tuesday, June 24th, 2014, and this is episode 73 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as usual, is Mr. Andrew Callett. Good evening, Jerry. How are you tonight, sir? I'm doing great. How are you? I am doing well. It is end of quarter, though, so that always adds just a wee bit of craziness to my life. Yeah. But otherwise, all good. Noticed you've been a little more on edge, so... Uh, is that, is that, you know, how can you tell? I'm usually so... Uh, that's that's true. Uh, yes. Well, I'll, I'll work on that. I'll, you know. All right. Don't send, don't send Bob after me again. That was yeah. unpleasant. Uh, speaking of Bob... Uh, oh, yeah? Yeah, Bob... Um, boy, Bob was pretty frustrated, and, and he really has a good story for me to, to convey to you. So, Bob has been working with this company who has been compromised... And there's just all sorts of craziness that I think we can all learn from here. So imagine a situation where you have a web server. And that web server is sitting out on an on a external network. And, you know, let's say that server is running, you know, Windows and IIS. And uh, let's say your AV flags a, you know, a, a web shell. Right, and uh, you know you just ignore it, and then it flags another one, and you ignore it. And why, why? Why would you ignore it? I, I, Bob didn't seem to know. So all right, okay. The, but that's a great question, and eventually, uh, the attacker managed to upload a web shell that wasn't caught by AV, and the attackers went on to manhandle the site. Uh, and and did all sorts of, of nasty things as you might expect, but it gets worse. It gets worse, and and I don't want to take a to take a step back for a second because you know something we talk about a lot is kind of looking at your logs and 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 trying to be in a position where you can detect when somebody's doing thing something on your network and, and reduce the amount of time uh, that that. An attacker is able to, uh, you know, to to work on your on your system, and we, not only us, but the, the information security industry in general is pretty brutal about antivirus, and and usually for for a good good reason, but you know here you have a case where yeah ultimately AV did fail and 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 let some malware be uploaded to the system, but it got you know it caught a whole bunch of stuff. And and this this company wasn't looking, so they're just ignoring all these alerts that are screaming at them. Correct, and and it was they, basically there was there was a lot of opportunity to to notice what was happening. So and uh, so what happened? Well, so so then what what happened was they noticed that there was a uh, a, a piece of software installed which is commonly installed on, and Bob didn't really go into details about what software it was, but this piece of software is commonly installed in in uh, larger environments, and it was 
uh, you know, something that I guess you would expect to be installed on most of your servers. And uh, it creates a local administrator account and has a default password. And apparently the default password was still uh, the default password. And lucky enough for the the attacker, unlucky for this company, uh, the attacker figured that out and was able to move around using that local administrator, basically RDPing and, and uh, doing all sorts of kinds of things we've talked about in the past, right? Uh, and then uh, that then there is a another dimension to this. You know that that web server in turn connects to a SQL database server that's on an internal network. And because that SQL server is serving up content for the website, there are of course uh, credentials avail- accessible to the attacker once he once he or she was there and. Uh, was then able to get into the SQL server and further root deeper into this company's network. And uh, that was kind of the end of Bob's story. But basically, he, uh, he, he was pretty on edge that, um, that there was that much fail, you know, from the not looking at your logs to the, you know, d- default password to allowing your external web server to talk to something inside your network. You know, it's it's a lot of opportunities to kind of contain the attack that, that went unmet. So even though every alarm in the place was going off, what finally clued them into the problem? Um, the website was defaced. <laughs> so did Bob's head explode? Yeah, I think so. I think he 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 does keep some duct tape with him to prevent yeah. prevent such such well, things from happening. So so you know, <laughs> but I I thought this was a good parable because you know we often talk about how how complicated some things are, but you know here you have a situation where if you just if you just think things through a little bit, there are a lot of opportunities. Given some very basic things that you may already have, that provide some some pretty robust opportunities to block these attacks that are commonly happening. And by the way, you know, from what Bob tells me, this kind of attack is happening a lot. You know, this is not a it's not an isolated incident. Yeah, this this kind of attack is becoming, you know, very very methodical. I don't know if there's a hacker handbook out there or what, but we're you know he says he's seeing it a lot. Well, and it also speaks to, you know, the bad guys only need to be as good as they need to be. And if we're going to make it easy for them by not even noticing when the security technology we deployed is yelling at us. That's right. I, you just kind of shoot yourself in the foot. I, oh. That's right. So yeah. so anyway, that's, uh, that, that is uh, what Bob had to talk about this week. And uh, from there, we will go into some stories. Hey, let me just say, by the way, all of our comments, all the reviews, all of our observations are those of us and us alone do not represent employers past, present, or future. Yeah, and certainly not Bob. I mean, I, I don't even know where Bob works. I don't, I don't know that, I don't know that anybody does really. That's true. Um, and nothing Bob says is representative of anybody's opinion, but, you know. Bob. Bob. Just... That's right. Anyhow. 
our, our, I actually have a have two stories that that are kind of related. I want to talk about them together. The first story comes from Tripwire, and the title is "Covert Acoustical Mesh Networks Present New Attack Vector." Wait, wait. Where have you heard this before? Bad BIOS. <laughs> That's right. And and that's why I wanted to talk about these two stories. The other story is about uh, some NSA hardware being reverse engineered. So anyway, let's let's uh, stick on point with this one. Anyhow, uh, I I have to believe that this came did in fact come out of the bad BIOS thing. Uh, basically, th- these researchers kind of got the idea that hey let's uh you know let's see if this is possible let's see if this uh this whole concept is possible and sure enough they took a uh, a, a basically a protocol uh, um you know a mechanism that was developed for subsea communication and they wrapped some uh you know they basically wrapped an IP stack and a routing protocol around it uh, IP stack is probably being a little generous, but basically they they ended up with this system where they can, through some arbitrary number of nodes, route, you know, obviously a very low bandwidth connection, but a connection nonetheless from a you know a target PC through what they what they call drones, out to the exit node, so kind of neat. Uh, the, the the second story, which is kind of related comes from the register and the title is Hackers Reverse Engineer NSA Spy Kit Using Off-the-Shelf Parts. And, you know, this is, uh, there's, there's not a lot of detail exactly what they're they're doing here yet. Basically, they talk about using some software-defined radios and really basic uh, electronic components to broadcast, you know, for instance, video signals and then use your SDR to uh, to receive that and and you have to write some software to demodulate it and and now you can see what's going on. I, I think the you know this is kind of a lead up to the some DEFCON or or Black Hat presentations that are coming up. But the reason I wanted to put these two stories together is that in my mind this shows that you know it's not necessarily the technology that is the limiting factor. It's just the creativity. Right, and so now you 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 kind of put people on the tracks that say, "Hey, you know, what about uh, what about you know uh, uh, supersonic communications or ultrasonic communications or or uh, you know or radar based uh, bugs? You know, all you got to do is give give people the idea, and now they're off to the races. And the thing that concerns me." from a security perspective. And I have this concern kind of the whole way through with all of the NSA stuff is there's a heck of a lot of people who are really creative out there. And we've unknowingly, right, planted some really nefarious ideas in people. And my expectation is that maybe not next year, maybe it'll take a couple of years, but I suspect we're going to start seeing some of this stuff showing up at your local bank. Well, this is why we really need to regulate all this, right? I mean, all these security researchers, all these ideas, really, before they publish anything, I really think should go through government vetting, and only safe ideas should be shared. Well, that's true. I mean, to protect the children. <laughs> Clear, clearly. 
Okay. No, I can't. I can't say any of that more with a straight face. Sorry. Um, yeah, it is interesting. You know, and it's, this is a cheesy comment to make, but it reminds me so much of science fiction, right? You look at all the science fiction that was written, like say, let's look at all the stuff in the original Star Trek. Um, how much of that guided scientists in their thought process of things to create? And you know that's kind of one of the roles of futurists and and science fiction folks is is to think about the evolution of things and then we sort of chase that idea. Uh, I, I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing. I think it's it's incumbent upon us to keep an eye on this stuff though, so we know uh, it's just going to get more complicated and more sophisticated. Uh, you know, when you've got working prototypes of things like bad bios. How are you going to watch for that? You know, well now I've got to have an ultrasonic IDS. That's monitoring for patterns in ultrasonic. That's right. That's oh, right. Boy. And, and by the way, I had the very same thought about you know Star Trek and, and whatnot, and, and its influence on, uh, on on modern day technology. When I was reading these articles, and I think that's exactly that's exactly the point. And we we do. I guess my point is that things are going to get a lot more complex. With yeah. in relation to this, right? So you know, this stuff, whether we like it or not, this stuff is out there. It's only going to become more accessible and more pervasive. There's a flip side, though, which is that good ideas pop- propagate as well. That's right, and and you know, clever new defensive technologies and such yeah. uh, definitely propagate as well. So um, I think net net, it's a positive. I, I you know, I was joking earlier. Obviously, hopefully, obviously. Um, you know, I, I like the concept of information being out there, but with that freedom comes the downside and the risk, which is that it can be abused. Uh, I'm okay with that trade-off. Not everyone is, you know that, but that's why I'm a libertarian and not to get into politics. I I, I default to freedom, and yes, freedom can be abused. So it's a plus and a minus. Uh, I know this is kind of straying a bit off of you know infosec, but it does kind of come into the concept of. Just because a vendor hasn't told you they have a solution for your problem doesn't mean that that problem doesn't exist. Oh, uh, yes. And, you know, one thing we get stuck on a lot is the world of InfoSec is only defined by either vendors and their viewpoints pitching their niche product or compliance. Yep. And we have to bear in mind there's more out there than that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that kind of reminds me of a of a you know a mindset I see far too often, where security, you know, for the most part, system integrity is based around patches being available from vendors. Right. Right. And and <laughs> you know, if if nothing else, Heartbleed should have shown us that you know that's not always a great plan. And you know, there are some vendors out there who, and you know, I'm looking at you, Cisco. Who, who, uh, you know, who kind of, I don't know why, I don't know if they didn't know or if they, for whatever reason, you know, about two months after they released a big spate of Heartbleed related patches. I mean, just within the last two weeks. And, you know, because to me that says, hey, you know, you can't rely on that. You have to take things into your own hand. You got to, you got to understand that those vulnerabilities are out there. And do what you need to do to mitigate your your risk. Hang on one second. I I got to cross Cisco off the list of future possible sponsors. Uh, okay, done. Um, <laughs> no, you're right. And and you touch on on a great topic, which is if your entire 
response plan is wait for the patch from the vendor. That may be broken. Now, the problem with that is that people are latching onto that idea and going, well, you know, if we have a firewall or an IPS or web application firewall or database firewall, whatever it is in front of whatever the device is, we can watch for that traffic that might be going to that bug and we can affect it and therefore we can virtually patch. I am not convinced that's a good idea. Yeah, I we'll think, see. I, I think it's a, I mean, my, my view is that's a great defense in depth thing, but I would not count that as a primary control. <laughs> so yeah. that's my, that's my view. And I, you know, I may be swimming upstream against some marketing people there, but. So the other thing that I was going to mention on the on the second story, the NSA stuff is, um, back in the day, if you read some of the histories of of the CIA and the NSA, especially their technology divisions, they actually had very expensive, sophisticated technology that was not easily available to the common person. Well, that's pretty much all changed. Mm-hmm. You know, aside from scale, you know, having massive computing capabilities. Um, a lot of the individual technologies can be replicated by the individual. I'm not sure what that means, but I do find it interesting. And uh, then it just comes down to, you know, where where and how it it's deployed. And this isn't a story we have, but, you know, there was a guy I just saw got fined a bunch of money in Florida for doing cell phone jamming in his car. And I remember I had a specific incident where I was flying from Atlanta to Pittsburgh on Delta. And back at the time, I was traveling a lot, so I ended up getting upgraded. But when I was sitting in the departure lounge, I kept noticing I was having problems with my phone. And somehow, someway, I figured out that a guy was walking around with a cell phone jammer. And it's the first time I'd encountered one in the wild, not like just, you know, as a hacker tool or something fun to play with at a con. And he was just screwing with people. And he was a weird, weird guy. So he ends up boarding my flight. He ends up sitting one row in front of me in first class. And he's got this cell phone jammer with him in first class in the seat back pocket. Now, this can be a problem, right? Because it can affect, depending on how it's built, more frequencies than just cell phone frequencies. It could potentially impact the aircraft's uh, you know, communications and navigation. So... This was post 9-11, so I grab one of the flight attendants, I pull him back, and I go, hey, you know, that guy has a cell phone jammer active on him right now. Like, okay, okay, thank you, sir. I sit down. Then the flight attendant goes and yells at the wrong people. (laughs) That never happens. Right, and these people who have nothing, start glaring at me, like, what did you just tell that flight attendant? So I'm literally watching this guy the whole flight, and he doesn't touch the 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 jammer at all, which is good. Until we get on the ground, we're taxing in. Everybody powers up their phone. He immediately starts screwing with him again, and that's when the people in front of me who got yelled at by the flight attendant realized it was him. I'm like, no, it's him, not me. And it was just it was a wild situation. And the funny thing is, flight attendant didn't understand what I was saying. I probably could have grabbed a cop. I don't know if they would have understood what I was saying. But when you start getting into these advanced technology situations, you know, that whole see something, say something doesn't work very well. well that's a good point. Um, I, don't, I don't know why I told this story, but it has to do with just, 
you know, you never know what somebody's got on them to screw with things. And in general, law enforcement such is not really up to speed on these things. Well, I mean, that, that's, I mean, cell phone jammers usually are just really broad spectrum transmitters. Yeah. And, uh, and I think the, 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 that's a pretty basic piece of technology, but I think the, the point you were probably trying to get at is the, that, that kind of technology is becoming incredibly and increasingly more complex in, in what it can do and, and its capabilities. But also, but also easily available. And easily available, that's right. Right. You know, it used to be, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, uh, some of this more advanced technology was really only within the scope of nation state level stuff. Now that's, you know, certainly not the case. So, anyway, a little bit of an off topic story, but. Yeah. Sure, we'll get some hate mail from our. Hey, by the way, uh, you know, the new logo, I, I think we're, uh, we got a significantly more listeners now. We're up to about 16. So I w- how do we not talk about the new logo? I, I don't. Well, we talked about it last week. Now we just got to work on the theme music, and we'll be in good shape. Oh my gosh! All right. So with that, let's move on. <laughs> Our next story comes from Slate, and the title is "The Ten Million Dollar Deductible: Why Cyber Insurance Is a Mess." And it's a it's a bit of a long article. There's a there's some interesting points in here. They they point out that Target. Uh, before it was breached, had a hundred billion dollars in coverage, which with a ten million dollar deductible, and they were actually trying to uh, increase that coverage. I'm not sure if it was with their the same carrier or a different carrier, but they were unable to. And uh, they, they they go and the article goes on to point out that uh, most companies cap out at about three hundred million dollars in coverage. That's about as much as you can get. Uh, which is which is kind of interesting, and it sounds like the average deductible is pretty large, which is not surprising. However, the the article then kind of goes into some weird places. You know, they they start talking about the difficulties that insurance companies have with figuring out what the actual loss is. So, you know, what? How do you know what Target lost as a result of this hack? And I agree, that's a very difficult thing to know because it has, it basically says how many fewer people shopped at Target as a result. But they spent, this article spends a lot of time talking about stock prices and, and references a couple of studies about uh, how there really isn't a correlation between breaches and stock price over, over you know, any more than about a week time frame. But... In the context of insurance, I'm not sure why that's relevant because insurance is never, I don't think ever has or ever will cover stock re, stock price related losses. So that was no, but you can use a stock as a proxy for material loss of an organization. Uh, I suppose that is that is true in in theory, right? In the in the in the aggregate, maybe not in the individual stock, but over time, all stocks included. In theory, it's you know the perfect price theory. The stock will rise or fall to the level that is applicable to the value of the company. So if a stock falls because of a breach, that means the value of the company has gone down because of that breach. Now, how do you isolate that to be the only cause? Now, in Target's case, they mentioned that Target was cut, cut uh, profits by 46% uh, in the quarter following the breach. 
Well, we'll see how long that lasts, right? They also say the stock is back to where it was, you know, it dropped down, but it rebounded within six weeks. Right. Um, so it's an interesting problem, right? You can easily, you can easily look at direct costs. You can easily look at, um, remediation, cleanup, fines, that sort of stuff. Uh, and they get into the concept of how do you deal with brand reputation damage? How do you deal with, um, you know, loss of business damage? And should you as an insurer? Right, long term, and I, I and I think that is that's the point I was wrestling with a little bit. Is it's you know again it it isn't necessarily about the stock price, and you you raise a good point about it about the stock being a, a you know the barometer for what's happening inside the company. Although you know I I still dispute that is uh, just the study itself points out that there's no linkage. You know there between, well is, between is there us. no linkage or is there no linkage or is there no material cost long term? Um, right. They're, they're saying they're not seeing an appreciable correlation between a stock price decrease post breach, that the stock is not affected long term. So you could look at that two ways. You could look at that as A, the stock price is not reacting to the breach because there's just no good way that those two things are connected and, and they, they shouldn't be measured together and correlation is not causality. Or you could say that the breach and the stock market's reaction to the breach um, is muted. That we've gotten to a point of, of of sort of breach fatigue and that the investors, uh, in the sake of the market, basically shrug. I, I think that is part of it, for sure. I think the other – I wrote something about this on a mailing list a couple of months ago. We were having a – spirited debate about this. The other thing that I think is, is probably even more uh, more relevant is when you look at how the stock market works, especially with these bigger companies, most of most stock shares are held by institutional investors who have, you know, algorithmic trading styles. And they're they're really the whole breach thing doesn't play very well into those those algorithms. Okay, but let's let's play that out. Mm-hmm. The breach causes a loss of business or an increased cost, which affects their earnings for the quarter. Those earnings is what uh, – sorry, I apparently can't speak tonight. Those earnings are what those institutional traders are looking at and reacting to. Well, it's it's anticipation of what those earnings are going to be. Well, anticipation and then – Forecasted results versus actual results. Mm-hmm. So one might say then, if we play this out a little bit, that a massive breach, a la Target, has had an impact on earnings. You know, they, their profits went down forty six percent at least thus far. Uh, you know, it'd be interesting to watch time over time how that affects things. Mm-hmm. But it's also difficult to know where their earnings would have been otherwise. And I think that's the. I think that is the big. The big problem, you know, again, going back to those institutional investors, there's, you know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, why, why does China not dump the U.S. dollar, you know, because they, they stand to lose a lot of money. Why do institutional investors not dump a stock after, after a breach? And it's the same thing. If you hold, let's say, 10% of a big company and you start, you start selling out of your portfolio, that has, that by itself, has probably more of a of an impact, at least in the short term, on the stock price, and and so you know I, it's a very complicated 
problem. And I, I you know, I just don't think that the, these trading models in, in any way, shape or form have enough history to be able to say how they should trade post breach. And that's. Yeah. You know, to be continued. Yep. I, I, I think that it comes back down to earnings again. So we'll see. I mean, the problem is, and, and, you know where the money to be made is is you don't want to wait for those earnings you don't want to wait for right um you know the analysts to come out with their predictions you want to be able to say based on news this is likely what's going to occur so i'm going to buy or sell the news or the rumor exactly um which is the challenge but again those are short term moves right and so i also look at it as long term over a year two years five years what does the stock do but again, you know, that's interesting. Investing long term, trading short term, you know, those sorts of anyway. So this is a bit of a side topic, but it's an interesting topic. I'm I'm glad we keep coming back to it because I think it's important to look at what are the long term effects of a massive breach like Target as as a case study, and yes. not to pick on Target, but they're the one getting the most media, um, you know. Uh, but we'll we'll cover other ones, I'm sure. <laughs> There, there doesn't seem to be any end of uh, of candidates to talk about. No, so, but um, you know, anyhow, there's a, there was a really interesting point at the very end of the article that was brought up related back on the topic of insurance. Since since uh, we're, we're we're leaving the economics part of the podcast and going back to the security part, uh, and that is. One of uh, of risk concentration or or interconnectedness, and it, it's a it's a really interesting thing. And you know, I've I've gotten really interested in the whole concept of insurance and whatnot. And uh, you know, when you when you read about how insurers work, they like to diversify who you know how, who they're insuring, so that you don't have everybody coming forward and making a claim at the same time, right? But in in the in the world of technology, it's not inconceivable that you have some really bad thing, whether it's a virus or you know uh, a, an attack or whatever it might be. Conceivably, could attack all of your customers or or some you know preponderance of them at the same time because there isn't you know there isn't the concept of you know geographical separation or. Or whatnot. And that's the point. Anyway, it's 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 an interesting idea that I hadn't really thought about. It is, but it also sort of assumes that across your customer base, they've got very similar systems and susceptible to similar problems. And yeah, it absolutely does. For sure, there's a lot of variability out there. Yep. Anyway. Anyhow, so moving on, our next story comes from CNBC. The title is Cybersecurity Firm Says Large Head Fund Attacked. The large, uh, the cybersecurity firm is BAE Systems Applied Intelligence, and the hedge fund is unnamed. And uh, basically, there was, as the story goes, this hedge fund, someone at the hedge fund received a phishing email. You know, big surprise there. And uh, and then sometime later, some months later, the uh, the traders noticed that their uh, that their trading system, or, you know, I guess what I would call their model, right, wasn't working the way it used to. They they weren't 
being as effective as they were. So when they when they looked under the covers, they found some malware that was inducing it, uh, some slight delay in the, on the order of milliseconds in their trading platform, and that was causing them to uh, you know apparently lose out. And, and what was interesting when I first read the story, the first thing that came to my mind was you know they had Bitcoin miners on them that were just sucking up CPU cycles, making the computer slow. <laughs> Which back in the day would have been like sitting at home or something. <laughs> yes, exactly right. Exactly right. But, um, you know, the, the, I guess there's two things. The, one is, obviously, we don't know any details about how, other than the phishing part, how this happened. Uh, but I would imagine kind of the normal the, the normal methodology that's that's kind of coming to the surface probably was followed. But the other thing that's that's more important to me, and I'm seeing this uh, I'm seeing this in, in my own business, and Bob said he sees this too, is uh, an increasing trend towards what I would call business process attacks. You know, so where they're, you know, it's not necessarily simply about stealing data or defacing systems or, or, or whatever. You know, now it's how can we how can we modify in some slight way your business system to you know to uh, siphon money off without you knowing it or or what whatnot. Yeah, you know this one's interesting. So before we get too far off that topic of you know setting at home versus Bitcoin miners, uh, what they found was that the bad guys knew enough about. Financial trading, high-speed trading, the finance market, the hedge fund market, that they actually wrote in random delays into the system to slow down the trading transactions and the transmissions of those transactions uh, by you know nanoseconds to milliseconds, enough to nullify the the algorithms, the high-speed trading algorithms that this company was utilizing. That was one of the ways that they spotted that this problem. They suddenly weren't getting the edge anymore that they right. were used to. Um, the other thing that was really interesting about that on, on your just most recent point about this business process attack is, is one, it's kind of a buried in this article, but BAE, BAE was also saying in recent weeks they were looking at a different cyber attack. Uh, I'm sorry, I just cyber oh, tip Oh, you jar. walked right into that I one. did, but I'm reading it. It's I'm quoting. I should have quoted. Quote, he said, BAE technicians in recent weeks have spotted a cyber attack that used malware to take over a large property and casualties insurer's underwriting system. And once they had that, uh, using the compromised system, the criminals created fake insurance policies and filed claims against them. So, similar. So, we don't know what the bad guys did here, right? But we're theorizing, and BAE is theorizing that, Using this information about the trades and the delays, they could have profited greatly mm-hmm. by um, knowing enough to trade against these moves, which is pretty sophisticated. That that is pretty sophisticated, and you know, I, I have to I have to wonder how effective, give, given what we know about high speed, how high speed trading works, how effective it would be, and you know, I, I also wonder if. If it actually was really a high-speed trading platform or not, I don't know. It, 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 that part isn't exactly clear to me. Um, yeah, uh, it is tough to say. I mean, at least according from the article, uh, upon investigation, the traders discovered an unexpected lag time between when they were issuing trade orders and when those orders were executed. Right. 
The delays the attackers added to the trading software ranged from hundreds of microseconds to low single-digit milliseconds. Right. Uh, I'm just playing playing through in my mind what it would take to monetize that, and it would. I mean, you, you would have to have a pretty sophisticated operation. You know, obviously, you would have to have your own ability. Uh, yeah, it's huge. To, I mean, to trade the, that. The short answer in my mind is your competitor. And That's you exactly where where I was going to. Yeah, sorry, didn't mean to steal your thunder. Oh no, no. Um, it's if you're a competitor and all you want to do is hurt their trades, the easy thing to do is slow them down, right, and then just be passive. But they were also saying that some of the behavior as files are being moved um, around on the system and off system uh, that they could have done something with. So. The malware recorded details of the orders they say in the in the in the story. Um, so it seemed to me it was it had more in mind than just undermining their trading strategy and wanted to get into ways to profit against it. Now here's the problem: when you start thinking about the time involved of capturing that trade, that intended trade, slowing it down, getting it off system, getting it onto another system over the internet, which is you know known for its non-latency. Uh, reacting to it and doing something with it, that trade's already gone, even if you slowed it down by a few milliseconds. Um, so there's a timing issue here. Now, mind you, I'm not any sense of the imagination, an expert on hedge funds and how they work, but I'm just not sure how they would profit from capturing that information in the short term. Because once that trade happens, it's done public anyway. Yeah, the only thing I could think of as we've been, as we're talking this this out, if there is some if there is some algorithm that that um, incents the you know this this hedge fund to actually perform a trade, and the you know the the adversary finds out what that you know what that algorithm is that says hey you know what I want to buy Ford at you know when this set of uh, this set of criteria happens, if you know if if your adversary knows that you're going to trade it at that you know once that <clears throat> that thing happens. And you are, you know, you as the attacker are able to induce a delay and make the trade before them. I suppose that's, you know, that's that's a possibility. But you know, it, again, it's very complicated. And you know, I, I uh, hopefully we'll we'll hear more. But I, I'm guessing this is this story is going to fade off into uh, into nothing. It's definitely the one I found most interesting of this week's stories. Yeah, most intriguing, for sure. All right. So moving on to our next story, we have another story from ThreatPost. The title is Hackers Put Hosting Service Code Spaces Out of Business. And, uh, you know, this is, this is uh, an interesting parable about what can happen. Uh, and Code Spaces was a code repository, you know, uh, GitHub-style company, and uh, they prided themselves in... Uh, availability and and redundancy and and all of that kind of thing and that was essentially what you bought when you went with them and and in fact some of their marketing material touted how uh, you know how available and 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 uh, um, accessible and how you would be silly to try to match their uh, their level of redundancy on on your own. In fact, I'm I'm going to quote because it's awesome. Uh, quote from the article, uh, a cache of the code space services included promises of full redundancy, and that quote is duplicated and distributed amongst data centers on three continents. And quoting their own propaganda, 
Backing up data is one thing, but it's meaningless without a recovery plan. Not only a recovery plan, but one that is well-practiced and proven to work time and time again, Codespace has said. Quote, Codespaces is a full recovery plan that has been proven to work and is, in fact, practiced. It, it's so painful to hear that being read, <laughs> knowing now what happened to them. Um, because, in essence, again, to quote the article, because they set up nicely, Codespaces went from a viable business to complete devastation out of business within 12 hours. Yes, yes. So this is a, this is a great example of what not to do on a number of levels, obviously, uh, and I guess we'll get into that, right? So, so the story goes, they started being DDoSed, and then apparently somebody allegedly accessed their EC2 control panel. They were hosted on Amazon Web Services, and uh, and they received an extortion email. Obviously, uh, you know they don't say what was in the extortion email other than th- that there was one. And, uh, and and that apparently started a investigation, and the the code spaces people determined that nobody had access to their machines because the private keys were were uh, were locked away secret. But um, in the meantime, apparently, I, I'm assuming that what they were thinking about there were the individual server images, and not not the EC2 control panel. Well, at some point, they they came to realize that their EC2 control panel was was compromised, and so they went through and changed uh, the passwords with that on on those administrator accounts. But apparently, so the story goes, the uh, the bad guy created some backup accounts, and uh, and then uh, once once the attacker realized that you know he was uh, he had been made. He started deleting everything, and what what seems to be the case is that this entire this company's entire infrastructure, which, as far as I can tell, was in fact spread across three continents, you know. But Amazon lets you manage all of that stuff from one convenient little place. Uh, the the attacker had the ability to just delete it everywhere, everywhere, everything, all of their backups, all of their redundant copies, everything. And uh, to me, it's you know, I I guess the 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 struggle I have is you gotta when when you go into this kind of business, right? You've got to understand what your threat is. So yes, it's awesome that you are on three continents, and it's great that if somebody attacks a server, right? You know, you have a whole bunch of others that you can fail over to. But you know, clearly, they completely missed the boat. If if somebody entered their control panel, the entire thing could be shut down. And this, in my mind, and and I see this everywhere I look now with all of these stories, it's a failure of threat modeling. It's it's just completely not understanding what the threat actually is. And, and how it can materialize. Yeah. And without that, how, how can you put controls around it to mitigate it? Yes, exactly right. And I, and I, you know, I, with all of these breaches, I think that's becoming one of the really 
common underpinnings is just a failure to understand what the actual threat is. So here's the question I have. Have we gotten to a point where it's become impossible to understand? That it's just far too sophisticated and far too complex? Or are we just sucking that bad at it? It's probably a little bit of both. So I walk into company after company after company and ask, hey, what's your network map? We don't have a network map. It's too complicated. I mean, if your network map, if your network is too complicated to have a map, then you know I think it falls into that we suck too bad category. That's I don't know that I agree or disagree yet, but I well we suck too bad because we are letting it get away from us. How about that? It is too complicated. If it's if it's that complicated that you can't have a map of it, it's obviously too complicated to to understand what all the threat vectors are. Right, I mean that. that I, but isn't complexity then the enemy? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, as target. Yeah, it's it's an interesting question, and uh, you know, when I when I look at folks who are security architects, quote unquote, at major businesses, that's in my mind a big part of what they should be doing is understanding how all this stuff connects together. Absolutely, absolutely, and uh, you know, I I, I just. You know, I don't know if this is if this is you know headed towards a uh, you know a security conference talk or what, but you know it just seems like we have a as a as an industry we have a just an utter failure to be able to enumerate what those risks are so that we can go address them because that's every 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 one of these happens as a result of a blind spot that that wasn't addressed. You know whether it's not looking at your AV logs or you know, not realizing that your, you know, heating and cooling vendor can get through your, you know, your your uh, extranet system into your domain controller and onto your 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 CDE. You know, th- there's it. It is complicated, but at the same time, that's why we're here. Yeah. So anyhow, back your crap up. I mean. If there's, <laughs> there's well, well, and make sure that your backups can't be deleted from the scene. That's top. exactly right. They had backups; they just were all impacted at the same point. Yeah, and, and, and but logically, and, and I guess this comes back to the whole threat thing, right? You know, when 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 you back in the old days when pterodactyls darkened the skies and we backed up to tapes, you know, you would take those tapes and send them to Iron Mountain. And you did that. So if your building burned down, you know, your your sand and your tape drives, you know, and your tapes didn't all get lost at the same time. But Jerry, it's all in the cloud now. Yeah, cloud. It is all in the cloud. And, and, you know, it's not separating those two is kind of like having your, you know, your tapes inside your data center that burned down. And that's exactly what happened. All right. So practical advice here is... Back up to another online cloud provider. Yeah, you know, and and I have to say, I got to thinking. I wonder why, or maybe or pull they back do. up to your local site, or, or that, or why doesn't why doesn't Amazon offer some kind of a, you know, or maybe maybe it's just implicit that hey, you know what, you could you could buy an entirely separate. Well, dude, if you're instance. root, if you're root, you can do bad things, and that's what happened here. The guy had admin control over their entire. Amazon stack. Right. 
Right. So is it incumbent upon Amazon to build a service to stop that? No. No, 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 no. I'm saying as as a as a alter as an option, right? A right. you know, a backup instance which is completely disconnected from your primary your your, your primary account. It would, you know, wouldn't be, uh, wouldn't be. Yeah, I could see a lot of customers going. That's an administrative headache. Well, I'm sure it is, but. But it's not a bad idea. Twelve hours out of business. Yeah, (laughs) kidding. Um, And you know, I'm not making fun of these guys, but uh, you know, the other thing to note here is that Amazon does offer two-factor auth for the console, and that was apparently, apparently, not in use. That's right. Yeah, and that's also a good point too. And but. You know, one thing we don't really know, and it's not at all talked about here, is how they got in. That's true, right? And and so, you know, was it was it by phishing? Was it, you know, was it a rat on an administrator's computer? What you know, we we don't know. And uh, you know, and that actually kind of goes into the next story about. Well, before we jump off, yeah. Though. The other thing I want to point out is something we've talked about before, and it was kind of glossed over here. Is once again a DDoS used to mask? As, yeah, to mask yeah. what was going on, right? Yeah, and that is, you know, a theme I think we're going to see more and more often. Absolutely, absolutely, and yeah, that's that's a great point. Um, the the other takeaway I had, and I'm glad you interrupted me from moving on. The other takeaway I had on this one was. This was a this was also a failure of incident response. And and, and the way I, the reason I say that is when you look at the sequence to the best of of your ability in the article that's presented, right? You you come to the realization that you know they tip their hand to they the company tipped their hand to the attacker that they were onto him before they fully understood the scope of what was going on. That's a good point, uh, and that is one to keep in mind, especially when you're dealing with an extortion demand. Yeah, exactly. And it, the 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 thing I was going through my mind when I read that was they really should have taken a step back and looked to see you know what what was actually going on, and I suspect. That's difficult to do, or maybe you know, may, maybe more difficult to do when you're entirely in the cloud, right? Could be. Uh, it also has to do with you know people sometimes knee jerk and panic. Well, I think that's exactly what happened here, and it sounds like uh, what basically what happened was they changed the user ID or they changed the password. And and the yep. attacker probably tried logging in and said, "Oh crap! They changed the password. They know I'm here. Yep. Good thing I created all those other accounts." Yep. And and then went in and started, uh, you know, deleting things. And you know, but again, if if in fact that is what happened, why would you not go and and take a look? And while you're changing passwords, why would you not go and see? Oh, what those other there's there's more accounts in here than there used to be. Well, it all depends on how they reacted, right? If if their initial gut reaction, and again, we're completely speculating here, is, shit, go change the password, right? Not let's see what they own and what they don't own. Yeah, but I, you know, I've been in I, I've been in incident response situations before where not the exact the exact same situation, right? But there there has been an attacker, an active attacker on, and you know we. One thing, one thing that you know that that I've liked to do 
obvious other than you know other than nuking and paving as they say is you know it's going through and taking an inventory of all the IDs and especially the the administrative IDs and you know changing the password on every one of them at the same time sure well this goes back to a comment we've made on previous shows have a plan mm-hmm. now this is you know kind of a pocket case maybe a little tough to role play this particular set of occurrences but nonetheless you know have a plan yeah yep yep i mean it 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 seems to me like their entire threat view of threats was based around the actual server images themselves and not the amazon infrastructure you know not the not their yeah. ec2 panel you so. know we don't we don't do really interviews on the show. We don't have companies on this show. We don't have marketing folks on the show. But I would love to get somebody who's gone through an experience like this and talk them talk with them through everything and see what could be learned on the show. I have no idea. Don't I'm not promising that. I'm not saying we could have that happen, but Yeah, that'd be uh, that'd be interesting. I think that would be uh, incredibly useful for the listeners to you know, kind of talk to somebody who's been through this. And maybe, maybe we'll try to, you know, as our first interview ever. Have you been pwned? Would you like to be interviewed? <laughs> Would you like to be heard by tens of people? <laughs> we can offer you green M&Ms. That's right. <laughs> That's right. All right. So our next story comes from medium.com. And the title is How Reuters Got Compromised by the SEA. And boy, did, did this story take off like wildfire. Yep. And, um, you know, what? what's probably most frustrating is that Reuters wasn't compromised at all. But this is the fundamental question, right? Who ultimately owns that responsibility? Absolutely. Right. And ultimately, well, okay, I don't want to steal the thunder story. Get, no. We'll come back to that. So I'll let you get into it. So, so, um, a, a a little while ago, Reuters, uh, the, their website, if you were to have visited their website, you would have been redirected to a Syrian Electronic Army controlled site that you know had the normal propaganda on uh, displayed on the site. And uh, so all, all impressions are that Reuters was in fact hacked. And what actually happened was that Reuters website includes inline content from a company called Tabula. And I'm really glad that I found this article because now I know that it's Tabula that I really hate when I go to many popular websites these days because Tabula is the is the uh, the little box down at the bottom of the page that says you might also be interested in all these other really crappy stories. From from other from other websites and and so so it was that particular piece of code that was compromised and and uh, Tabula itself has says said that the Syrian Electronic Army compromised Tabula through their normal spear phishing campaign and what was interesting is that uh, the 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 press release from Tabula said that they uh, they use two step authentication and I I'm, I'm not really sure what two-step authentication is well it's a kind of a dance where you yeah I, I i assume that's that's what it was step but step to the left and a hop to the right uses like the microsoft connect kind of thing 
Well, and if anybody gets that Rocky Horror Picture Show reference, I, I give you points. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, anyway, they they claim they changed their passwords after that that happened. But um, you know, it, I have to wonder, given given some of the the, the ways that the SCA works, if two factor is actually a really good. Um, mechanism to protect against them because if they present you with a fake logon page you know you're probably going to put your two-factor token into that thing too so you know i don't really know but um in any event i think you were you were on the right point that at the end of the day it was reuters site that was uh you know that that was defaced it wasn't tabula's site it was it was reuters reuters responsible for whose content they include on their page and at the end of the day, it is, you know, they, they own that. So um, I think that's the point here is, you know, you, you've got to be aware of who your vendors are and what what kinds of negative impacts they can have on your operations. And Yeah, it is interesting. And, you know, the other thing that I found interesting is, does this now start to shift you down the mindset of, all right, for your... Enterprise desktop images and laptops or whatever, do you automatically install an ad blocker on your whatever flavor of browser you use? I cert- I use an ad blocker. I'm pretty you know, hardcore about that on my own box, but my work box doesn't. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if that makes sense from a defensive standpoint because we see more and more of these water goal attacks coming from the ad networks. And, you know, should we just be blocking them as just a matter of course? Nobody needs to see them. It has no business purpose unless you're in a specific, you know, marketing or social media role. I I, I completely agree with that. And one of the things I did uh, or have done is uh, block those at the web proxy. Mm. You know, and, and uh, it, that helps quite quite a lot, right? It would have helped. You know, obviously, if if uh, somebody had been uh, you know, been proxied through that with a with a rule to block ads, like you said, you know, there's a number of ways to do it. Basically, you can do it. You can install ad blockers on your on your fleet of workstations, or you can block it at the proxy or whatever. But I think you 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 raise a good point. It has no business value. You know, it's not. It's it's probably not going to impact your you know, your employees. Aren't going to be sad because they don't see ads anymore. Right, uh, and and it's it's just going to reduce your your threat. So, and I, I think in this particular case, there wasn't any, uh, you know, the, they weren't redirecting you to malware, but that's kind of ephemeral, right? I mean, this mm-hmm. it could have easily been uh, redirecting you to an exploit kit. And in fact, I think it was askmen.com. dot com. We didn't get this that story in, but askmen.com dot com is a pretty popular website. Uh, was was uh, was defaced in a you know a very subtle way to include a link to a nuclear exploit kit. Hmm. The other thing I'm curious about is you know I know sophisticated websites have off-board monitoring that watches for availability uptime that kind of stuff. I wonder if that is being used here to detect these sorts of things. I don't know, but it seems like it would make sense to me. It's a good point. I don't know. Uh, so Moving on to our last story for the evening. This one comes from The Register, and the title is Heartbleed-based 
BYOD hack pones insurance giant Aviva iPhones. So, you know, this is a, another really interesting story. So uh, apparently Aviva, who is a European insurance company, uses a, a mobile device management product called Mobile Iron. And they they allegedly had a somewhere over a thousand iPhones and iPads connected to this. And back in May, someone apparently broke in to Mobile Iron and sent out a couple of really witty texts. Well, wait, let's be clear. Okay. They broke into the Mobile Iron instance at Aviva, not uh, Mobile correct. Iron Corporation. Correct. Yeah, the, uh, the 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 MDM solution made yep. by Mobile Iron at Aviva. Yep. At uh, good point. So they so they they somehow logged into that and sent out a uh, you know a series of text messages which you know apparently led people to believe that it was Heartbleed related and then proceeded to uh, delete or basically wipe all the devices and then deleted the uh, Mobile Iron server. So uh, Aviva then, in response to that, they moved those thousand uh, devices over to their BlackBerry server, which uh, I'm not sure why they didn't do that before, but uh, that that uh, apparently was their, their backup solution, and then they started restoring devices. The article kind of goes back and forth with an insider. Apparently there's an insider who's fighting with the PR company at Aviva, uh, you know, we lost millions of dollars. No, we didn't. It was inconsequential. Yes, they did. No, no, we didn't. Uh, but you know, a Mobile Iron itself has come out and said that this problem didn't result from a compromise or a vulnerability in any Mobile Iron product, and that it was a problem that was specific to Aviva. I think they called it a you know a one-off or something like that. Which which. Makes me wonder: Is this whole article about it, you know, tying it to Heartbleed, a bunch of crap? Because we we don't yeah. actually know how they they got in. I think that the, the the tie to Heartbleed was a comment that the attacker made on the, uh, you know, one of the text messages. But you know, they, they did go on to hypothesize that possibly. You know, at some point in the past, the Mobile Iron instance was vulnerable to Heartbleed, and maybe they, uh, the attacker, stole credentials. But while it was vulnerable, or that potentially there's a load balancer or a reverse proxy or something in front of it that uh, that was still vulnerable, and, and they were able to uh, to, to get or, some creds from that. Or it could be as simple as somebody fished them for their credentials from Mobile Iron, or or they used. You know, ABC one two three or default password, right. or you know, or 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 we don't we don't have any idea. Yeah, Mobile Iron came out and said, "Hey, we're not vulnerable to Heartbleed." Right, and in fact, anyway. in fact, they said we we even had a, a webinar on how we're we're, yeah. we're so not vulnerable that so, we even had a webinar. <laughs> but to me, there's another lesson here, and this is because it's been a bit of a pet project of mine. Of I am expecting. BYOD to start causing some some backlash. I just don't think that people are going to keep wanting their own personal device to have such a, look, look here. Thousand, yeah. thousand of them got wiped, right? So my own personal phone, 
I just want to be able to get company email, so I so I sign up to the server, and next thing I know, my phone is wiped. I would be pissed. I mean, I I, I would I would potentially not sign it back up, to be honest. But then again, a lot of people are lazy and they don't care, right? So, but this is the kind of reason why I don't do BYOD. I, you know, no thank you. You can provide me with a phone and a laptop or whatever it is you want me to use, and I'll be happy to, one, not have to own any of the, you know, shared security problem either. Mm -hmm. Uh, but maybe that's, you know, I'm also the guy who elects for a TSA freedom group instead of going through the machine. So I'm probably in the one percentile. <laughs> you are not the 99%. <laughs> I am not. Oh, boy. All right. Well, that is all the stories we have. And I think we're uh, we're pretty far over time. So I appreciate everyone's time tonight and I appreciate your time tonight, Mr. Callett. My pleasure. Thank you for having me yet again. Absolutely. Have a great weekend, or actually a great week. And uh, if you enjoy the show, give us some uh, give us some stars on iTunes. You can find the show on the internet at www.defensivesecurity.org. You can find show notes and back episodes and all that kind of good stuff. If you have any comments or ideas for the show, Send us an email to info at defensivesecurity.org. You can follow the show on Twitter at DefensiveSec. You can follow Mr. Kellett on Twitter at Lurg and me on Twitter at MaliciousLink. And with that, we will call it a week. Take care. Bye. Good night.